Welcome to CYC Podcast Discussions on Child and Youth Care. I'm Wolfgang Vashon. Since at least the late 1400s, the history of Canada has been a history of colonialism and racism. And activists have been fighting against individual, institutional, and systemic oppression as long as Canada has existed. Over the past several years, Black Lives Matter has been confronting anti-Black racism, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, and structural barriers for all minoritized people. Today, I have the pleasure in speaking with one of those activists, Tomi Lola Ojo from BLMXYE, which situates itself on the traditional territories of the Cree, the Dene, Nakoda, Sotu, and Ojibwe people, as well as the homeland of the Métis Nation. You might be more familiar with it as Treaty 6 territory or known as Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Tomi, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super excited to hear about uh, what's going on with BLMXYE out in Saskatoon. I was talking to a friend today, so I was talking to someone with, from Black Lives Matter, um, Saskatoon, and they were saying, Oh my God, I thought I was isolated here as a black activist in Toronto. <laughs> so I can't, I can't even imagine. So uh, welcome, Tommy. Thank you for joining us. And maybe you could start with a little bit of uh, an introduction about uh, who you are for uh, our listeners. Of course, Wolfgang. Thank you so much for having me. And just um, a little correction before I move forward. It's actually B-L-M-Y-X-C, not X-Y-E. Oh, look at that. Um, I, I guess it's been a while since I... Flew into uh, flew into Saskatoon. <laughs> That's all right. I know it's an unfamiliar um, practice with a lot of people. It's the airport code, right. and I was really surprised to find out that's what it was because I'd already been using that term um, oh. <laughs> just for other things. But yeah. yeah, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the land acknowledgement. Um, I always like to start off with that, but thank you because you've already done that. I think it's the very least we can do as um, settlers, especially me being on Treaty 6 land. Um, I think um, that is the very bottom of the bar and what we should all strive to do is continue to um, reaffirm and um, rebuild our relationship, our relationship with our Indigenous brothers and sisters and include them in our discussions and, our, and in our decision-making rooms. Absolutely. Um, Thank you for that. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. As you said, I am an African Canadian. I am currently going to the U of S pursuing an honors degree in psychology. Um, I'm 20 years old. I'm really into crafts right now. Crafts? Uh, yeah, crafts. <laughs> I'm really what, into crafting. What, what kind of crafts are you doing these days, Tommy? Um, I'm doing a lot of collaging, some beading. I like to make jewelry. Um, I'm really into crocheting too. My grandma taught me when I was a kid mm. and I just picked it back up. So that's been something to do to pass the time in quarantine here. Um, I am affiliated with BLMYXC, um, an intersectional anti-racism organization in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Great. So some of our listeners, we have listeners from all over the world and some of them might not be familiar with, with Saskatoon. Um, what can you tell us a little bit about about Saskatoon and then maybe why uh, 
how how you know how how Black Lives Matter um, uh, YXE started in Saskatoon. Of course, so Saskatoon um, and Saskatchewan is kind of like towards like the middle of Canada. Um, we're often called the city of bridges because we have all these beautiful bridges and we have the Saskatchewan River flowing right through us. Um, it's really beautiful in the summer. I love going down by the river for walks and um, just looking at the people of Saskatoon who are also really great. Um, we're also known for our really harsh winters and you and I were talking about this a little before we started recording here. Um, it gets very, very cold here. Um, there's also lots of wheat and canola fields. Um, fun fact, we used to have the most restaurants per capita before the pandemic. Oh, wow. um, but a lot of, yeah, it was, we're really great. We have a lot of really great food here, but sadly a lot of them uh, have had to shut down. Um, we're also pretty conservative compared to the rest of Canada, but it, there's still a really great community of people um, who love art and who love um, activist work here. Um, BLM YXE um, is a, Sask a Saskatoon chapter of the wider Black Lives Matter movement. Um, we started actually very recently, um, late last year around the time of um, George Floyd's murder. Um, there was a lot of social media buzz and it was, some, it was something that was really, that started a lot of really important co conversations here in Saskatoon. And BLM YXE was started by a bunch of kids um, in high school in their early 20s. It was just a bunch of young people who got together and decided that we wanted to do something about racism and the racism we had experienced in person at our schools, at our jobs, on the streets, but also what we were seeing um, institutionally and what we were seeing on social media. So at first, the first thing we did was throw a rally. We, we threw um, one of three BLM rallies that was um, held last, last year in Saskatoon. And it was really great. Um, it was, I felt like it was really powerful because we had so many different um, people telling their stories, people from um, all different walks of lives. We, we had people, and we also had um, the support of the indigenous community as well at our rally. And then we kind of just grown from there. Um, we're on social media, we're on social media now. We're looking to get um, official with the Toronto chapter of BLM. Um, and we have some cool projects in the work um, coming up. And obviously because of COVID, we're trying to be safe and that is kind of, slowed us down a bit, but we're still doing a lot of great things, but being as safe as we can. Cool. Um, just before we go on, there's a lot of rubbing, and I'm wondering um, if your your speaker is rubbing, like maybe you're wearing like a headphone speaker or something that's rubbing against your shirt or something like that. Might that be happening? Oh yeah, it's my hair. Do you oh, hear it's your that? hair? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'll tie it up. Oh, that'd be awesome. Is this any speaker. better? Yeah, that's much better. All right. Oh, cool. Yeah. Sorry about that. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, so without, you know, re-traumatizing yourself or, 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 you know, triggering the, the audience, um, what are some of the, you, you talked about your community sharing um, stories or examples of, of racism and, and all of us understand racism, I think, but um, a lot of our listeners are people who work with young people and, and may or may not be 
conscious of all the ways that racism shows up. What what are some examples of the way that that were some experiences of, of racism that that BLM um, X Y or Y X E sorry uh, wanted to uh, to confront or, or that people were experiencing, particularly like in the school or as young younger folks. Of course, um, that is actually one of our big focuses right now, just trying to get Black students and students of color to share their stories about what they've experienced um, racism-wise in school. And I know personally, um, I used to live in Toronto before I moved to Saskatoon, and it was just a completely different ball game. I'm talking, I was getting called slurs on the playground. Um, this was back when Vine was really popular and Vine, I, I think we ignore it because people love Vine so much, but Vine really was a breeding ground for a lot of like racial stereotypes regarding um, Mexican people, Black people, um, Asian people. And I truly felt the brunt of that in real life because people were throwing all these um, stereotypes at me, making fun of my skin, my hair, my lips. Um, it was it was just um, very blatant in your face. And then I come to Saskatoon and it's a lot more subtle. It's, it's microaggressions. And I always like to say that microaggressions is a misnomer because micro, the micro part makes you think it's, it's a smaller act of racism, but it's just racism that's treated like it's more subtle. It is just as violent as someone like um, calling me a slur on the playground. So um, I know a lot of students have um, spoken to us about um, skipping class and even sometimes failing class because they're they're doing um, a book that's talking about um, a books from from a different time and the n word comes up a lot in the book and the teachers insist on saying the words or insist on having other classmates read out the words. I know personally I had um, a history teacher in high school who was telling us about a slur for Ukrainian people that was so terrible that he wouldn't even write it on the board. But then he said, it's like when black people in America get called. Um, and he just said that in front of the entire class and I didn't know what to do. Um, I was the only black person in that class. And then there, there's also inactivity on the side of um, other, of bystanders and the administration of schools. Like when that happened, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to speak to because there had already been incidents of um, my a, a different teacher saying the n-word in class reading a book and them um, facing no repercussions so it's kind of like a if you feel stuck you feel stuck in a bad place um, and how sorry. no I was gonna say how how can students address that? I, I, yeah, there's there's a tremendous power imbalance. So I I I'm a faculty yes. member. I, I I teach at a at a college, and there's a tremendous power imbalance. And and it, you know I have the ability to you know assign grades, assign marks. They can be appealed, but but it's 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 a very emotionally difficult process. And you know I, I know as an instructor I can be. I can be much more subtle than just failing a student. I can make, you know, it, it can be very unpleasant. I mean, we've all had, you know, mm -hmm. teachers that we were not happy with in school and we felt, you yeah. know, so how, how can a student confront, um, you know, that sort of blatant racism or the, the, the more subtle forms of racism, which as you say, 
are, are just as damaging, just damaging in a different way. Yeah, so um, my experiences are from a couple years ago. And actually, when I went, when I was at my high school, um, they told me that we didn't celebrate um, hot, like uh, events like Black History Month in Saskatchewan. It just wasn't a thing. But I have recently been back to my old high school. I'm seeing a lot of um, younger people in the community who are already involved in BLM, in anti-racism work and in BLMYXE taking charge at their schools and making changes so that it's easier for the people who come after them. And um, at the end of the day, I think it's really important to have um, caretakers and teachers and people who are in positions of power over youth and children who have anti-racist and anti-bias training. I think it's actually crucial because when you're a teenager, everything really sucks. I don't, I know um, <laughs> people experience, experience puberty and being a teenager differently, but uh, um, I did not like being a teenager. Everything was scary. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want to, I didn't want anyone to look at me. I didn't want any attention brought to me. So um, speaking up about um, racism, even though I knew it was wrong, would have been just another seemingly insurmountable source of anxiety for me as a teenager. So I think it's really important that we have um, caretakers because the onus should not be on the child, it should be on the adults who know better and who should have the training to, to rectify the situation. Um, so the children are not put in that situation in the first place. But if, if they do end up in that situation, I think it's really important that the school has um, implemented policies in place that there are rules that um, teachers have to abide by when it comes to racialized communities or discri often discriminated against communities that protect the interests and the um, ju that just protect the child because it should not they're going to school because they're a child and they need to learn they shouldn't be they shouldn't have to be defending their identity um, in a place where the people who are looking after them should know much better. Absolutely. What I, I know that that you folks are doing research um, with students in um, and and doing surveys and and sort of collecting information. What are you doing around that research, or what is sort of the the focus of that research with with students um, through the Black Lives Matter um, chapter in Saskatoon? Of course. So right now we actually have a petition going. Um, to ban racial slurs in mm. classrooms. And so in doing that, we're, um, we're a group that is obviously for the community and we're here to serve the community that is around us. So we wanna hear the issues people are facing. So we know what, what people want change, what we need to do moving forward. So with this research, we have been asking a lot of people, we've been asking about um, what kind of racism um, people are experiencing it, what age it's happening, or like when it happened relative to right now. Um, we're talking, we're asking people about how they felt in that situation and, and um, whether they felt they had the room to kind of criticize that or get justice in a sense from what was going on. And what we've been finding, what we've been finding um, is, similar to the stuff I've already been telling you about. So it's a lot of people um, being stressed about going to class or being stressed about um, passing class because um, their teacher is 
being insensitive about racial topics or keeps reading the n-word in class we actually had some non-black um, or poc students say that they had witnessed um, teachers say racial slurs in the class and tell them that it was okay because there were no poc in the class mm. um we had some some people i think someone res responded that they had experienced, do you remember experiencing and recognizing racism as young as nine years old? And that's obviously a really big problem because growing up is already difficult at, uh, is already difficult on its own. You're already, there is so, there's so much, there's so many other things you have to worry about. Uh, and then on top of that, you're worrying about whether you're gonna be discriminated against because of something you can't control or whether you're gonna lose an opportunity to what you to something you really want because of the color of your skin. And actually um, late last year, Black Lives Matter Saskatoon did this thing called Prairie Grays. I actually ran it and it mm. was just a platform for anyone who felt like they had a story to tell that hadn't been heard to come speak. And we had um, this um, queer Filipino um, woman come on, come. Um, featured in Prairie Grays, and she talked about how she had such great dreams for her future and how she knew she was capable and she knew she could put in the work and she knew she would do a good job at what her dreams were. But her biggest fear that was that she was going to be kept from achieving all of these things because of who she was, because of the color of her skin, because of who she loved. And that is and when you only have one life and there's, in, we're in a pandemic, there's so many other things that are making life difficult. Racism being another stressor on top of that is just absolutely unacceptable. Absolutely. What's the response been from the school system? You talked about having a petition, a petition around racial slurs. How, ha um, and, and, um, and activism from students, how has, uh, individual schools or the school boards in general um, responded to your pushing back at the, the racism that exists? Of course. Um, so because of COVID, it is very difficult right now um, because schools don't want any extra visitors coming in. They don't want any extra speakers. It's kind of hard to get people in a room together to talk about these things, but, but a lot of um, BLM, the people who found the BLM are students in high school and they are taking what, they're taking this newfound community and this newfound support um, from BLM and going into their schools and demanding change. Like I said, with my high school, Black History Month was not a thing that was celebrated when I went there. But now I know that through the efforts of young Black people in schools right now, that is something that they are celebrating this year. They're putting more they're putting renewed effort into um, celebrating blackness is celebrating blackness and um, highlighting um, in the indigenous community, which I think is really important. And this is where we can move forward from here. I know right now we're also working on um, a black history curriculum that we're mm -hmm. hoping to present to the school board and get the, hopefully get that incorporated to what is already um, being taught in history. Um, I know there is other petitions uh, relating to how Canada handles its history with Indigenous people and there's people who are fighting for change um, so that the true 
and the full, the full truth about um, Canada's history with in Indigenous people and stuff like residential schools is getting told in high school. And actually, that's another point that we sh that would be great to mention. Um, someone from our um, research that we've been doing on the experiences of Black students and people of color actually said that they didn't know that residential schools existed or that they were a thing until they got to university. Wow. And that is just 18 years of their life that the education system had failed them. Um, I think Canada has, um, Black people and Indigenous people obviously have rich, rich, rich history in Canada, but it's, but a lot of it, um, I know personally, I ha I've had to learn through the internet, through my own research, through um, books, through um, just, um, I worked at a newspaper. So just um, in my spare time, a lot of, I don't, I don't recall learning a lot about um, how Canada handled Indigenous people or Black people at all um, in my elementary and high school education. Um, and I think um, the idea of an Indigenous studies class being optional to a history class, which is the way it was when I was in high school and how I do believe it still is right now, is not, is not okay. I think that has to be um, incorporated together because separating Indigenous history from um, so-called Canadian history is just, that's just a whole other side of the moon that you're not seeing, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. I was just this morning, um, so as, as we're talking, it happens to be Black History Month. And uh, this morning I was listening to someone talk about pushing to um, in Ontario to make it mandatory for all grade 12 students to have a, a course on the history of um, Black peoples in, in Canada and across Canada. Uh, because I, I would absolutely agree with you. My you know, public school education taught me almost nothing. Now, you know, it's a little bit longer ago than your high school experience, but um, it taught me absolutely nothing about uh, the, the the black community. You know, I don't I don't think I even knew that there was slavery in in Canada, um, based upon what I what I learned at school. Right, so there's all sorts of gaps. Yeah, and just like with. Um, globalization and just the amount of young people who are taking an interest in in um, activism and in making change in their communities. We're finding that a lot of ch kids of the diaspora are leading these fights for um, for social change. So I'm a diaspora kid. I am from Nigeria, but I'm living in the diaspora in Canada, um, and. I'm sorry, I'm having one of those brain farts I told you about. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. The diaspora all across Canada, right? And I think that that part of what what we forget, you know, I was talking to um, someone not too long ago who talked about being Indo-Caribbean as opposed to Afro-Caribbean and and you know mm -hmm. where where does she identify within the the black community, the the Indian community, um, uh, you know, people of color, like where, yeah, where is her place in the community? And I, and I think that, you know, they're, they're, the diaspora is is large. It's it's big, and and it and it, um, 
encompasses all sorts of, of folks from all all across the you know all across Turtle Island. Indeed. Yeah, and what I I remember um, what I was trying to highlight, and it's that um, having lived in Nigeria for years, of my, I spent my childhood in Nigeria before I moved to Canada. Um, we spend a lot of time learning European history because it becomes our history through colonization. I can tell you about European generals and Spanish war. I can tell you all of that stuff, but, and there's so much focus um, back home on um, being on how whiteness and just um, like North America and Europe are seen as these idyllic places where everything is perfect. There, like nothing bad happens, everyone is happy, this is where dreams come true. And then you come here with that idea that, oh, everything here is better than everything I've ever known. And um, it's it's worth more than that because that's what you, you see in the, that's what you see in the um, media, that's how people talk when it comes to um, vacations or money or class, things that are North American, European are seen as being worth more than things from back home. And then you come here and a kid on the playground or someone walking down the street is berating you for who you are. So it's just this kind of attack from all sides. And it's furthering this notion that um, uh, wh whiteness and, and just your, things that are done in a European and North American way are what you should strive to be. And then there comes this struggle of um, trying to assimilate yourself, but then you still have like, you're still you, so you have to learn how to um, kind of exist in this world because there is a certain level of assimilation you have to um, achieve to exist in this Western world, but also pay homage to your roots and um, fight these injustices that you're seeing in the streets, um, fight these people who are telling you that you're less than because of who you are. And I know for my, um, for me, it's a lot because I have um, younger siblings and I don't want them to experience what I experienced. I have a family that works in the city and I don't want, um, I don't want the effect that racism has, um, the effect that racism has had on me to be the same for them. So that's why um, I think it's really important to have these conversations and um, do this anti-racism work especially from the perspective of someone who is um, an immigrant. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, as we move towards wrapping up our, our conversation, um, you know, a lot of the people who, who listen are people who work with young people who are, who are care providers, caregivers, um, work with children, work with youth. Um, Many of whom, um, probably most caregivers, in, in fact, are, are people of color, black, indigenous, um, and, and, and women for, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, I'm wondering what you see as the role of professional caregivers when it comes to you know, these, these issues of systemic racism, settler colonialism, uh, injustice, um, both locally and, and globally, you know, what is, what, what do you think the role of, of professional caregivers is in responding and, and addressing those, those realities? 
I think it is their um, duty to educate themselves on, like I mentioned earlier, anti-bias and anti-racism training. Because um, even if you come with the best of intentions and you have no intention to do harm because of our increasingly globalized world, and again, um, people moving away from home and, and um, people just have coming from walks of life that are so different that you couldn't even begin to fathom what their life and their beliefs might be. I think it's really important to um, come at come to these situations with an open mind, willing willing to learn because because there's always the um, there's always the possibility that you might through um, conscious or unconscious bias um, inflict harm on a child, even if you don't realize you're inflicting harm. And that's kind of a scary thought to tackle because. Um, you might want to start like kind of watching like every step and being like, oh no, I really hope um, something I'm doing isn't hurting this child. But at the end of the day, it is just um, approaching everything with love and empathy and the willingness to learn and to be proven wrong and to um, just experience different worlds than you are used to. Um, I think um, kids are great. I used to work with kids a lot when I was younger. Um, and I think there's a lot that we can learn from them because I think they pick up on a lot more than we realize, a lot faster than we realize. But I also think they can be great teachers. So just coming to approaching childcare and care of any sort, just with an open mind and with the notion that your way of life isn't necessarily um, the only correct way to do things and that there are there's beauty in kind of letting yourself experience this um, other person's super cool, different and varied life, you know? Absolutely, yeah, well said. As you're talking, I, I, I was thinking of, of the moments in my life when young people that I worked with um, challenged me on my racism, challenged me on my, my ableism um, and took, you know, really brave, courageous steps to to stand up and um, and you know I wasn't always as graceful as I wished I would have been and I am so grateful that that they took that opportunity and I, and I was you know and I'd learned I learned I you know I realized yeah. how in what ways I was racist um, and it's not the responsibility of young people absolutely like you said earlier it's responsibility of my peers and my colleagues um, and whenever uh, you know a young person, does have that courage to speak up to me, the very, very, very least I can do is to shut up and listen <laughs> to them speaking yeah, rather than getting defensive yeah. and being, you know, no, I, I have a right to say this. You know, the, the very least I can do if they have the courage to and the willingness and the grace to to help educate me, the least I can do is, yeah. is listen and say thank you. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's I it can be hard to get told you're doing something wrong, especially when oh, you're sure. um, in a position of power. But we all need to find that humility within us, or else we're never going to grow. Um, at the end of the day, aside from um, far-reaching and transformative institutional change, obviously, um, we want to make sure that um, everyone is having a chance to 
um, grow and thrive and explore in a conducive environment and an environment that they feel comfortable in with people who want to help them and people who are going to give them every chance to be as great as they have um as as great as they want to be you know i do tommy lola ojo thank you so so much for uh taking the time to to talk with me and um all of our listeners today and and share your wisdom and and your uh, your knowledge um and for for educating educating all of us so and all the great work you're doing over there at BLMYXE. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Bye-bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>